Ilkasi Chetanzi wiki Pahami Chaji Oyate Tokahe Wichakie Tashunke Wanagi. Those are my names, four of them. All of them will be lost in translation. It's impossible to truly translate anything, but I can transmit the feeling that comes out of that. My guest today is Teokasin Ghost Horse, who is a radio personality. He is a musician. He is an author. He and I used to be bandmates and roommates. I don't know if you know this, Teokasin, but we read There, There by Tommy Orange, and we read an anthology of native poetry called When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Song Came Through. And I was like, well, we've talked about these native topics. I should have someone who's really an expert in this stuff. Or I should have an actual native person come on and talk about their own experience. I had no idea what book you were going to pick. The book that Teokson chose was The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere by Paulette F.C. Steves. It's a fascinating book. I'll let you take it from there. Why did you pick this book and tell us a little bit about it? Well, hey, thank you, Lucas, for having me on your program. And I think long overdue, a lot of places that indigenous voices are needing to be heard now since they're being backed up by Mother Earth. And in light of that, that's what this book is about, the indigenous paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. And I'll let you know, Lucas, that I interviewed Paulette maybe three, four, five times over the last five to six years. And knowing that she's a cultural anthropologist and sort of a maverick, and meaning that her work had to be accepted by the default knowledge of the Western Hemisphere, if I could say Occidental, lightly, of Europe and America, because that's who is in control. This work has been backed up by now other scholars and academics, and she's been really towing the same line, I would say, as Vine Deloria Jr., who is a relative of mine and who was voted one of the top 40 authors of last century. And so he set the world on fire by saying, we didn't come across the land bridge. Science is now having to prove it or be humbled and say, well, yeah, you're right. There's no bridge at all because you all are here long before 12, 13, 14, 15,000 years ago. In light of that, I wanted to bring their voices to the air, the indigenous part, rather than the Native American, because as you know, Lucas, we've been here before 1492. And so where is that history? And it's often been hidden through sexism, racism, and all the isms that are out there, because that is, I say this, not as a pun, but maybe I should say it as a pun, restrictive language of English. English is very restrictive because it's very cause and effect. It has a beginning and ending. If you can think about this as a box, cause and effect, hierarchical, that means top and bottom, and also a time sequence of a beginning and ending. So it's all a box. And this is where this language that you and I are talking about, a foreign language to me, and all the other languages that come from the so-called conquerors or domination. So these languages often come into play when we are trying to reinterpret into this language of English. And she's done a great job being Mati, and she grew up in northern Canada, in Yellowknife, I believe it was, in the Yukon, and being far away from what we call civilization, but she had her education here in the U.S. and in Canada. It was a promise to her 
son that she would go on and finish and become a PhD and talk about the message behind the Indigenous Peoples Act. It hasn't been heard but until these last few years, as you know. And I know we performed in the Museum of Natural History at one time, and all around us were statues of European gods and goddesses. And there we were entertaining the elite class of what is called the United States. And I often see that all the mainstream media stars and back then, you know, who were big names and now they're no longer around. This 20 years ago, I think. I often think about times where, geez, I had to stop being native so I could just get along and not bite the hand that feeds us. And so finally, with the radio show and with voices that just don't give a damn anymore because <laughs> climate change. All of that is happening now, but no one is paying attention to it. In other words, I like to say this about Paulette and part of the writing in the vein of scholars that she does. She actually is revealing the truth, which is an apocalypse, right? That's what apocalypse really means, to reveal the truth. So when Native people talk, we're not afraid of critical race theory. So we talk about the elephant in the room, where a language is barely beginning to talk about the elephant in the room. But here is the Native view. We're talking about the elephant, and then we talk about the room. Who built the room around the elephant? And then from that, whose idea was to build a room around the elephant? So we're seeing all this box and people protecting that box because they have to, because that 12% of the world that is Occidental or of Caucasian origin actually ruled the world by the 96% psychologies that are out there. And those psychologies are fairly new, 150 years old, coming from Freud and Spock, how to raise children, and it's all patriarchal. And this is what rules the world. So the rest of the world is under the domination of 12% of the people. Paulette Steves has even more numbers and percentages how and why it's still revealing itself yet. So when I really understood the ad nauseum of scholar academic, I call them yakademics, because that's what they really are. They want to keep it in that without feeling. So then we go back to the language. And this is why I'm telling you about this book. In Lakota language, we cannot speak Lakota without intuition. And the language is such that it has no nouns. This is why people are afraid of native languages. And even in that, without alphabets, because there's no need for concepts when you're speaking a verb language. You see, because everything is moving. Energy, you describe energy, and then you describe the movement of the energy. And this is why our language is too big for English. So little books like this, they mean a lot to people. And look at how much I have behind me and down further. All of that could be probably put into a few words in our language because they're really quantum physics languages. And the majority of languages spoken in the world are indigenous 7,000 languages spoken, and about 74% are indigenous languages. But the thing is that the threat is that at the end of the century, those languages may all go extinct because there's very little speakers left of these languages, and it's all because our languages are learned in location or learned in place. And once these places go, which is nature, then these languages also will go. So now you would come down to the book. Why did I suggest it to you? 
See, this is even the default thought process of the West. Well, it's the Bible of the Native people. So we're referring to something and defaulting to there and saying, well, I have to explain everything in a language that needs so many words. And our language doesn't need that many words to transmit energy, which is feeling, which is intuition. And so that would be a long and a good way to explain why I recommended this book. Well, thank you for that, Tiokasen. I want to go backwards and just unpack and for the listeners some of the things that you said. Tiokasen briefly alluded to a gig that we did at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. We used to be in a band and we played native music. So I've recently found out that I am on my mom's side, mostly Taino. I didn't know this at the time, but I was a different kind of native person. And Tiokson and I met in Pleasantville, New York. We just started jamming together and we started playing all over New York City and we did some crazy concerts that you set up because you would do this thing where you would wear regalia and talk about your language and talk about your heritage. People really, really liked it. I loved being a part of it because it was so amazing to learn. And then I've mentioned this on the podcast about the way that you used to talk to me about the Lakota language. And I mentioned this when we were reading a different Native American text I said, Tiokasen used to tell me about how the Lakota language doesn't have time and doesn't have tense and doesn't have nouns. I never really understood it, but you sort of told me that you're not going to understand it because I can't explain it in English because English is a prison. I mean, obviously that's fascinating and intriguing. And as a person who likes to solve puzzles, makes me want to figure out how to understand language from your perspective. But one of the things that I love about this book and one of the things that I love about any good book is... I think it's likely that the Lakota language is more efficient, but a great novel and a great book, I think in English is one idea. It takes 300 pages to explain that idea. But at the end of the 300 pages, you do understand the idea. Maybe in Lakota, you could have said it in two sentences. And I feel that way about this book. I mean, usually I just kind of read the book close to the interview and just remember, maybe write down a few questions. I have 20 pages of notes from this book. None of them really make any sense. They're factoids, but like the idea behind the book is the decolonization of the academy and the fact that we are not going to make progress in archaeology until we start to understand it in a different way, until we start to understand history in a different way. And the Western conception of history is one damn thing after another, but there are different ways of understanding it. Some of the ways that uh, Stevie's has discovered through talking to her relations and paying attention to native myths are actually matching up with the physical evidence that we are able to find through these more Western techniques. And that that is true and it's happening and it is largely being ignored by the academy because they have an agenda and a history that they want to maintain. So to take it back to the book, can you talk to us a little bit about Clovis and the Clovis first civilization and just for the listeners who aren't archaeology nerds, what that is, and we can talk about then why it might be wrong or why it certainly is wrong. It's been skewed, let's put it that way. Some of it is truth and it presents itself as nothing but the truth and so help you God type of truth, right? When I think about, well, when they find footprints, they say, well, human habitation, human inhabitants. But our people are like, wait, that's us. That's who we are. You name us Native Americans, Native American Indians, Indigenous peoples, and to us, they're monikers. But we know who we are. So we're not going to waver from that. And the concept that we don't have is that we're at odds against because if you know who you are, there's no need to be at odds against those who are trying to erode your knowledge, your intelligence, and the way you live. And that has happened to us by this Western mind. So when I think about these claims of the Clovis, um, how they hypothesize everything, that 
they base it on science and science is always changing and earth is always changing science then their notes have to change according to the good old boys club and who gets the money for this type of grant and whatnot so i think the crucial area of study that paulette brings forward is the fact that this language is being controlled by those folks who control the clovis point mythology and so i had read a book way back in 1980-81 when i was in college and what it said ronald goodman was his name and he wrote a book american genesis and he said basically that Louis Leakey, who discovered the Java, or the oldest woman in the world in Africa. So he came and they made this big point that everybody comes out of Africa. But then he later came and started studying in places like Sunnyvale, California, near the tar pits. He started finding bones and evidence of culture and even Clovis points, if that's what it was, 20 feet deeper than any place else in the world. And as you know, layers of history of Earth bury those cultures and they discover them thousands of years later. So he said that indeed that humans, the first cultured humans may have come out of the Western Hemisphere. So I think that's what we are alluding to. Paula Steves actually challenges that. But it's nothing new to Native people because that's all it is, is hidden. I mean, you could do a political thing and say, well, 1978, the Native Americans were given freedom of religion. And so then we can speak up and speak out. But we were also speaking this common knowledge amongst all of us, either through language, customs, songs, dance, ceremonies, a common thread, our vagus nerve throughout the Western Hemisphere, that Native people know who we are. And we, we can't make up history because our history is buried with the language of the earth. So the earth doesn't lie. So our languages don't lie. And since they are not dualistic, there is no need to balance everything all the time because we are in the balance. So this book, when we're talking about the Clovis point, they can keep dating and dating and say that Native people were here. They can even say that they were here as colonials. They also came here too. But then you have to push it back where some of our stories, oral tradition says that all land was one. And what does the Western science say? Oh, Pangea. Pangea existed. But why do we have stories as Native people of this land all being one without books? And we now know through our languages that there were certain movements to the earth, by the earth, by natural elements, such as wind and earthquakes and fire and water that happened. These monumental events that made the land move and split up. Our people carried the stories about the split and the movements and still do that. So we know in our DNA through the stories how many years we've been here, but not in a time frame of the Western man. It's in the movements of the earth that our memory is, and that's why we interpret it. And what Paulette Stevens talking about the time frames of 12 to 18,000 years ago to 34,000 years ago. So, and I'm going to tie it in with the American Genesis by Ronald Goodman, who was a maverick also, who was blacklisted because he dared to say the same things, if not even more of what Paulette Steve says in her book, he brought it out then in 1980, 81. And 
his findings were not accepted by the good old boys club. Well, now that egg has a crack in it. And Paulette Steve's one book here to say that the Clovis Point mentality out there is still trying to keep the egg from showing the crack. And all this time, what's being born here is the indigenous science. And that's in all of us, Lucas. It's just that the layers of colonization and domination have not allowed the indigenous consciousness, the voice, our, our knowledge, our experience, really, not so much wisdom, but our experience as Native people, as indigenous peoples anywhere to come out. But now it has because we have and are sustainably living with the earth for so long, more than any civilization that you can put them all together, indigenous peoples have still sustained their their ability to live with the earth. Man, that's amazing. For our listeners who are coming into this discussion cold, let me be the Western professor for a second and just explain how archaeology is and why this book is so revolutionary, because I don't think it's obvious that this is a revolutionary idea without knowing the context of Western archaeology and Western archaeological scholarship. And so I'll start with Hormuz Drassam, who essentially discovered Nineveh and Mesopotamia, pushing our knowledge of archaeology back about 5,000 years from where it was. And he discovered the Gilgamesh tablets, which had a story of Noah's flood that was thousands of years older than the Bible. And Hormuz Drassam was from the Middle East. He was native to that part of the world, but he was also educated in Britain. And he led the teams, he did all this stuff, but stodgy white British men like Wallace Budge took all the credit and they decided on the narrative and their names appear in the museum and Hormuz Rassam's name has only recently come back to prominence, even though he was known in his time. And this is like European and Middle Eastern archaeology, which is way later than what we're talking about here. And I bring that up just to say that this archaeological boys club is very strong and very powerful and they decide how things are and it takes a really long time and a lot of evidence to change their opinion because with the paucity of evidence that they find by the scientific definition they really are just making up what we would call just so stories and in order to change that story what you're doing is changing an archaeologist's career who is at that point an eminent professor and so he doesn't want you to be right, even if all the evidence is pointing to you being right. And so let's move over now to the Western Hemisphere. So Clovis, if you dig, archaeology is, I think, pretty obviously dated by layers. The further down you go, the further back in time you are. And that's the assumption. And in Western archaeology, we find evidence of native civilizations. You know, we find evidence of Spanish colonization, and then we find evidence of native civilizations. And then we get to this level where there are these specific looking arrowheads. If you picture an arrowhead, that's what they look like. It's those arrowheads, right? And we find these hand axes and arrowheads that look like this. And because the first place we found this was at a site called Clovis, this is called the Clovis civilization. So archaeologists decided, well, this is about 12,000 years old. And the last glacial maximum, which is the last time that the land bridge was available to traverse by foot, was 12,000 years ago. So this has to be the earliest civilization, because the fact that we're proceeding under is that native people came over the land bridge. So they find these Clovis civilizations, and for years, up until even the present day, it's heresy to dig beyond that. Because, well, we know that that's the first, so why would we bother digging deeper? And the problems with this, obviously, to anyone who's not an archaeologist, these, there are myriad problems with this, but one of the most prominent and obvious ones that Stevies points out is that the theory is that there was this hemisphere-wide civilization called Clovis that was uniform. So it was like the same civilization from 
Alaska to Chile. That has never existed anywhere in history. There has never been a hemisphere-wide uniform civilization. So very clearly, there were different people in Chile than there are in Alaska, and there were probably different people in San Francisco than there were in Los Angeles. It was highly likely as rich and as different and as diverse a culture as it was when Columbus got here in 1492 and had been for thousands of years. And so in addition to the knowledge of the native people and the knowledge of the language and the knowledge in the stories that you're talking about, there is also archaeological evidence that this Clovis first theory is just nonsense and made up. And it was a career killer to say that even 20 years ago. And today, it's slowly becoming a more accepted idea that Clovis first is nonsense. And so I think partly because of this book and books like it, we're going to start to see some real movement and some real change in archaeology in the near future, I hope. You think so? I think being a lot older than you are, Lucas, is, yeah, things move very slowly. But according to the Earth's time, it's going to even be slower, right? So we want to speed things up in the Western Hemisphere and get to whatever we can find and therefore in a long one look for why we are here as Americans. But what about the Native people? And I think about pre-Clovis. Pre-Clovis is where our stories come from. And then you mentioned Gilgamesh and all those five, 4,000-year-old histories. But then you get deeper into the Hopi. You get deeper into the Lakota. You get deeper into our stories. Then we can match them up with pre-flood even the creation stories are so vast and various and coming from a different place and transversing back and forth to cosmology points. See, this is where astronomy and quantum physics come in because that's what they're really afraid of. There's a different kind of consciousness out there way past the book that we hold in our hands because this is containable. So when I'm looking, how do you live a dictionary? How do you live a book? So through the living languages is kept alive that thread of truth, I guess you would say, because there's no theorizing in native languages. You can't theorize. It's not just black or white either, because you have the many dimensions in it where we're speaking in two to three dimensions in any European language. When you think about languages, it takes about 6,000 years for a language to evolve into its own. But even in California, where you live, there are 15 different language stocks. And there were many more in the United States only. There were more native languages with differences spoken than the rest of the world combined. So when Columbus got here, you're talking about thousands of languages that were more than the rest of the world combined. You see? So now when you... Talk about oral history, which is not a good thing because it's called gossip. It's called hearsay and rumors. See, that's when we lost the thread of truth is when you could really record things with your own body. Let's say metaphorically, the tree records seasons by its rings. But when your language is steeped in these rings, then your language becomes that of animals and plants and that history that you could read. The young women could still go read trees. The Lakota language reads the stars, reads among many indigenous peoples. That's our history. Those are our books. And those stars haven't changed, but yet they have. But it's only the land has changed. So we remember these stories by these events. And I think Paulette Steves puts it in these time frames for initializing this argument that, hey, there's always been people here. 
already. It's just that you all are new. And therefore, once we don't have to read books, then we can really get back to where we all were and begin with as intuitive people, as intuitive human beings, if that's too much. So it's pre-Clovis. Think about it, Lucas. If we get over pre-Clovis, what's there? Do we have to prove? Are we prove it people? Are we the experience of who we are as Native people, which doesn't match up with the proof, right? It can only go so far. But now, knowing and working at an academic world, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. Science is just now catching up to what our stories have been explaining all along. We can't go as far as saying, well, everybody came from Africa, everybody came from the United States or North America, but we all came from someplace. And I think that's what it is. And you mentioned the mystery. There's a difference in thinking patterns here is the West is always trying to solve the mystery, looking for proof. And then once they get it, then that will be the answer. But Native people aren't trying to solve the mystery. We accept it because we know that's the life giver. So we don't have the definition of what God is or proof is because it's always changing anyway. So who are we to say that's God or that's the truth? So we just keep with the rhythm of the earth where the West is looking for time frames, geological and mythical even, so that they can take their place. We're not looking for ourselves. So I think there's a difference in the end here with this book, decolonizing archaeology, decolonizing all these so-called Western truths, where you come to indigenous peoples, there's no such thing as colonizing or decolonizing. There's no formula for that. We don't even go there. That gets us into the brain chatter. My grandfather spoke 15 languages, and not one of them were European languages. But these languages were all indigenous languages, and he was born in the 1800s. So then you get to wonder why and how did these people understand quantum physics without ever going to school or even charting a mathematical formula. So when Einstein came here in 1930, he went among the Hopi and other native peoples. He knew because of the remoteness, these Hopi, the children never saw a book in their lives and weren't educated in the Western way. But the time he spent with them, he came away with, and I'm saying the Hopi because there's different pueblos down there. And I'm going to paraphrase him. He said that 12-year-old children of the Hopi were the most prepared to understand the theory of relativity than any place he's been in the world because they were living it. Whereas the Western world looks to use reality, but Native people are barely hanging on to living reality. You see, there's a difference in how we look at books too. We can include it where... This Western way is to exclude it because it's not proof enough until you come up with data, measurement, and even the weight, and even gone into the economics of it. How much can we really allow Native history and Native thought processes into this container? Because right now, nine states are prohibiting any Native American history curriculum within their school systems. It becomes political, but we know why, because they're afraid of our consciousness that Paulette Steves wrote this book about because there is a different type of consciousness. And the reason why I say this is because when we understand this knowledge here, we are understanding through our DNA, through our intuition, that there's no such thing as conscience. 
There's only consciousness because that's what nature is. There, it's conscious all the time, not in the future or the past, right now. So when I'm thinking about how I can read books and I've gone through the educational process and I understand it that way, but it only goes so far because here's one thing that Paulette knows that other people also of native blood, that there's a certain time and place that information that if you really bury yourself in education, you begin to educate the wisdom out of yourself. And I think that's the end product of education and even books. If you think that's your savior or your salvation point mentality, we have to understand we cannot educate the wisdom out of ourselves because that kills intuition. So I think one of the things I learned from you that I am now going to give you credit for that I don't think I realized I had learned from you is my religion is simply that I believe that there are things that are in principle beyond my understanding. And that is it. That is really the sum total of it. There are things that I will not and could not understand. That is my whole religion. And so you can call that whatever you want, but there's no sense naming it because you can't understand it. So thank you for that, because I think you gave that to me at an early age. I was just thinking as you were talking about the differences in language and the way that we process information in the West is, if you'll permit me, like a cardinal sin of interpreting consciousness and thought in the metaphor of the medium of a current technology, which is something people have been doing for hundreds of years and is usually error prone, but I'm going to try it anyway. But it's a little bit like the language is our operating system. So there are only so many things the Western operating system can do. It can do a lot, but it can do a lot of things powerfully and very slowly that a native language can do very quickly. The way that we learn in the West is when I went to music school, the metaphor I like to use is dissection. If you want to learn about an animal, you can take it apart, you can dissect it, you can learn about every little part of that animal, but the animal's dead at the end of that. So the idea of Western education for me, I think I completely agree with you that Western education takes something away from you as it gives something else to you, but the goal and the responsibility of the educated person is to spend their life getting that back and to try to have both sides because there is a lot to be gained from books and there's a lot to be gained from Western knowledge. And there's clearly a lot to be gained from native knowledge as well. And to synthesize those is difficult. Paulette Stevies, this book, this is an academic text. This is a PhD thesis level text, but it also deals with these intangible non-Western ideas, but it's like a translation. It's like a gigantic translation project of bringing these native ideas into this Western framework, which I can see why there would be resistance to that, but I also can see the usefulness of it because this is the operating system that most people think with. So this can actually expand their mind in a way that I think is really useful. Yeah, you said something about that program. And as you know, I used to be a computer programmer with the state of Washington and knowing the options that were there through rational thinking and on and on and on. But those codes are codifying, they get old. And as new technology comes along, so this feudalistic way of trying to explain our existence here is always that we have something brand new in technology. So you see even authors have become more or less technical human doings rather than the organic human beings that we were meant to be, where we actually have our own spiritual technologies 
that we still need to hone. One of them is to learn how to live with the earth. So when you're talking about Paulette Steve's writing about even the eighth fire of her people, lighting that, it's like, oh, that's a nice story from those native people, romanticize them. But if they're not fitting the pattern, then what do we do to them? We put them in the bad man clause. They're not any use to us. So you have to also understand Western way of thinking is to extract. It's a very extractive way. How can you take the vast knowledge and try to squeeze it back into the box, the paradox? So it's the parabox. And it's always about going there and bringing it here. But it won't ever fit. So language of Lakota is so inclusive, includes mitako yoyasi. That means E equals MC squared and beyond. So the Lakota language and many indigenous languages are so inclusive that we have room for everybody. But you think about why isn't there room for native people in our own land, that we're on reservations, that we have to be contained because that consciousness is much more in this book. So her next book will be about not just translating the stories about all my relations and how we've kept these scientific quantum physics stories alive. It also will be about how we transmit. It's very different than translating. We can translate only so much, but then it loses in translation. All languages do this. We can say that, but all those languages still cannot translate the holistic, the quantum physics that is alive and present in indigenous languages. And I know this because I've traveled. I've traveled so many, I don't know how many, 90 countries or so from that time in the 2000s and beyond. And every place I went, I went to the land, to the native people to ask their stories. And after 3,000 or so interviews, it comes down to the language. It comes down to the land. They still hold honor and respect for the land. And the regenerative language that we have is actually the quantum physics language that the West is just now coming to and trying to own through scientific methodology. And so when we're talking about shouting in the Western hemisphere that we discovered something new, the Native people are whispering. We're whispering this. We know this. And so we're still working with energy. And I think that's what's missing. Like you said, yeah, we can have information, glut and get greedy for information and ask all the questions, at least the right questions. But think about it this way too, Lucas, is that we're still speaking the same language to try to wake up that put us to sleep in the first place. And that's why we need the words brand new because we're products of capitalism and racism and sexism and hierarchy. I found out by traveling to Auschwitz in Birkenau, in the middle of Birkenau, the biggest concentration camp during that period, two miles long one way and the other, so it's enormous. So we went with a group, and then there was three, four Native people, including myself. We stopped in the middle of Birkenau, in between Canada and between Mexico. That's where they named these sections. And then we asked, can we have a ceremony here? So this ceremony basically came out to be where I sang the song, the elder loaded the pipe, not a peace pipe, but he loaded to the Chanupa. And as soon as I start singing, this herd of deer, 2022 deer in the compound that got between the fences, they all 
lined up. They stood at attention while I was singing. All the rabbits that were in the field stopped and they all faced and you could see their ears perked up. And all the crows and the birds in the trees and on the fence all basically were all lined up. And when I finished that, they went back to their business. So we're talking about speaking a relational language. So when you think about what the next book that Paul Steves will bring out, it will be more about the relational language and the transmission of it beyond the human anthropocentric set that we've been programmed into. But also when we return to the Catholic retreat center that we were staying at outside of the camp, I sat down and talked to Virgil Kilstrate was the elder's name from the Lakota people. He was 70 something then. He's gone now. I asked him, hey, uncle, Lakshid, is there a word for domination in our language? Immediately said, no word for domination, no concept for domination. Think about domination, authority in religion, in science, in government. Who's controlling? And then you think about Native people. Hey, all we're trying to do is fulfill our obligation to life, to the earth, to the elements where the Western world is saying, I have a right to this and I have a right to that. I have this right and I own that. It's about rights, individual or not, but that's what's going on. Yeah. Wow. I mean, this book is about domination. That's interesting that there's no word for it in Lakota, but this book is about dealing with the fact that our academic system and our system of knowledge is more about authority than about anything else. Man, that's fantastic. Tiokasen, I think we could probably keep you here talking about this all day, but I want to actually just ask you a favor before we end, which is that when we used to do concerts, you started them in this specific way where you would talk about your name and then you would welcome everyone in Lakota and talk a little bit about your language. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Would you mind just doing that for us, just speaking a little Lakota for us and telling us a little bit about your name and about all that? Those are my names, four of them. All of them will be lost in translation. It's impossible to truly translate anything, but I can transmit the feeling that comes out of that. The spirit comes in, the hawk who touches the sun, he puts the nation before himself. And the last one would be in honor of a spirit that no one sees that we know as horse. So these are all moving languages. And if I was to even go deeper into our language, it would people would say it's a prayer or it sounds like, but really it's talking reality. It's talking about a kantu. A kantu is actually A-K-N-T-U. It actually means earth being, but in deeper translation, it's talking about the being from the ancient future now. So as you know, there's all these books about be here now type of mentality. Well, our language has always been here. It's always been respectfully full of consciousness. And there's no conscience in the deeper, older Lakota language. So when you're conscious, awake, then your language is too. It's alive. But if we put it in subjective, objectifying domination, it becomes dead. And so there's no spirit in it. So I think that's the difference because we can't even say we're better or worse in Lakota than the language I'm speaking to you now, which is a foreign language to me, Lucas. <laughs> well, you speak it brilliantly and you have as long as I've known you. 
thank you so much for recommending this book and thank you for coming on to talk about it and just imparting the wisdom that has clearly not been wrought from you by the reading of many books. I know that in addition to the studies that you do outside and with your culture, you also read voraciously. So thank you so much for sharing that. And in that spirit, I do ask all the guests to recommend two books to our listeners. Any two books that you think are important for them to read? Oh, I say God is Red by Vine Deloria Jr. And Martine Prechtel, The Smell of Rain on Dust, a Cree elder. The other one is a Dakota Lakota, who is a relative who's not here anymore, but God is Red. Wow, great. Well, Teoks and Ghost Horse, the translation of your name that you just told us, Teoks and Ghost Horse, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for recommending this book. We're going to have to talk to you again soon. I'm also happy to announce I reached out to Dr. Stevies and she's going to come on the podcast in January. So we'll talk to her too. Yeah. Please tell us where listeners can find you. Google First Voices Radio and you will find the latest radio program archive and or live anywhere around. Just search it. Google it. Go ogle it. Yeah. Next week's guest is Maggie Smith, author of Goldenrod, also the author of the fantastic viral poem, Good Bones. The book she chose is The Life by Carrie Fountain, which is another book of poetry. I highly recommend that you read Carrie Fountain's The Life and also Maggie Smith's Goldenrod. They are short collections of poetry. They're both brilliant, and I really love both of them. Our discussion is going to be super interesting, and I think you're going to really like it. There's one place to find all the information you want about the Book Society podcast, and that is at booksocietypod.com. We have a website, links to old episodes, schedules for upcoming episodes, blog posts about each episode, credits, all kinds of fun stuff. So booksocietypod.com. So when we were in Standing Rock, you've heard the fist-pumping activism up there going, Mani Wichoni, which is water is life, but it's way beyond that. Is we use the English alphabet. So we say M-N-I, Mani, like Minnesota. Yeah, so it's Mani. So it's not water is life. That's nounifying it to death. So the E in the older context of it means voicing and the ni in mini means living and the m in mini means that which is in relationship between you and i and all things so you put it all together it's voicing the living relationship between you and i and all things and that's what the english would call water but what we feel because water has consciousness indeed it does how much of it is in our body in that tree and everything water is in everything otherwise it wouldn't be earth it'd be all apart so this is a different way when i talk quantum physics of the indigenous languages that quantum physics is math the math is in our language so now you walk with a different energy a consciousness without conscience because water doesn't have a conscience it has consciousness mm-hmm.